What's up, y'all? My name is D.A. Horton. I'm privileged to serve as a pastor in Los Angeles, California, and I have the wonderful privilege of actually walking us through the contents that Jesus Christ gave the seven churches that were in Asia in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. Now, you may be thinking, why is this study relevant to our church and in our context today? Well, here's a couple of things to think through. First and foremost, these were literal seven churches that were in existence at the time that Jesus revealed the contents to the Apostle John. And Jesus actually contextualizes his notation, if you will, to each and every church specifically so that they would know that he was speaking to them directly. In addition to this, there's two components in each letter that I think we should not refrain from adhering to. First and foremost is Jesus' command for those who have an ear to listen to what the Spirit of God says to each of the churches in plural. So what does that mean? That is telling us that the content, the promises, the prescription, and the praise that Jesus is giving to the churches in these two chapters of Revelation actually have principles that are applicable to us in our present time today. In addition to this, it leads us to the second component where Jesus is regularly saying to the one who conquers. And that word conquer literally means walking in victory. It kind of reminds me of a good illustration regarding the Olympics. You know, every four years there are athletes from every country on planet Earth that compete against each other so that they can gain the right to represent their nation in the Olympic Games. And then when the athletes from around the world compete in specific events, they put it all out there on the courts, in the pool, on the volleyball court, wherever it might be. And what they're doing is they are competing so that they can earn the privilege of being graced with an award known as a gold, silver, or bronze medal. And when the competition is over, the winner has been determined, the athletes walk away from their place of competition, they change their clothes, and they get ready for the presentation of the awards ceremony in which they are honored and they are given the reward for all of their efforts, all the sacrifice, all the disciplines that they have employed in order to be the best in the world. But in the interim time when the competition is over, and before they go to the awards ceremony, they are walking in that victory, those who have won the awards. This is a great parallel for the church to understand. In our present day, I believe that Jesus Christ is speaking to all local churches that he is Lord over, and he is inciting us to look at these specific letters and saying, glean from the wisdom that he has poured out to those historic churches so that in our present time, we can adhere to his praises, his prescription, and his warnings for us to either repent or to continue to carry on as we march forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray that our study will bless you. I pray that it will bring great content in the conversations in your small groups. And at the end of the day, may your local church obey Jesus Christ by making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, and walk in the victory as the conquerors that he has made us to be through his finished person and work. What's up, y'all? My name is Pastor D.A. Horton. Currently, I serve as a pastor in the Los Angeles area, and it is my privilege to walk us through over these next few sessions, Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, when we think through why is this relevant for today, I think there's a couple of realities that we have to look at that are clearly stated in each letter that Jesus gives to the seven churches of Asia. The first is the phrase, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what that tells us first and foremost is that Jesus was actually speaking to seven literal churches that were in existence at the time of the giving of his revelation to the Apostle John. They were strategically located in seven different geographical locations. And Jesus contextualizes his language to each specific city, giving them clarity that he was speaking to them in real time. It's very exciting as we work through that. But the second reality is actually in this common phrase to the one who conquers. So Jesus is actually speaking about how we can walk in the victory that he has secured for those who are part of the body of Christ, which is the church. So as we think about that plural word churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the reality of us walking as conquerors, we can then find that Jesus is actually giving us present tense practical application for churches today, not just those that were in existence at the time of the giving of the book of Revelation, but here today, present in our time and our generation. We can walk as those who have victory in Jesus Christ. An illustration that I think can give us a good synergy with this reality is the Olympic Games. Every four years, athletes from around the world, from countries all throughout the globe, compete against one another so that they can earn the right and the privilege to represent their nation in the Olympic Games. The athletes go through rigorous training, they go through disciplines, they sacrifice food and time, all so they can compete with the hope to win an Olympic medal for their country. And after they compete and they walk away off the field, the pool, wherever they have competed, the winner is determined. They change their clothes, they clothe themselves in the proper attire so they can be presented with the reward of the medal that they have rightfully earned. In the interim, after they're competing and the reality of the awards presentation, they are walking in the victory that they have secured. Now the reality of that is given a great parallel for what Jesus has done for us through his perfect life his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the grave, it actually secures victory for those who are in the bride of Christ. So we, the church of today, we're walking in that tension known as our mission field. There are people that are anti the gospel. They are hostile against the name of Jesus. We can be tempted to compromise or see corruption seep into our churches. And Jesus' warnings to the seven churches in the book of Revelation actually can give us hope and clarity regarding principles that we can apply so that we can be those who conquer in this life because of the victory that's been given to us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So it is my hope that I can pastorally walk you through so that you can see the content that Christ has given us and the promises that he has secured for us through his finished work alone. So the first letter that we're gonna look at is Jesus's letter to the church in Ephesus. Simply put, this is the loveless church. Jesus opens up by informing the church in Ephesus that he knows all of their works. He actually affirms the great things that they have done for fighting for and securing healthy doctrine and sound teaching. But the reality of this understanding should be understood this way. Jesus says that he has knowledge of their works. And the word knowledge actually means that he has full exhaustive insight into the reality of all that they have been saying and doing. But not only that, Jesus takes it a step further because he is omniscient, he is fully God. He actually knows their thoughts, their motivations, and the internal framework of their soul. 
It's very similar to this. I was watching a TV show one time and I remember the boss was worried about which of his employees was taking money, was stealing food from the restaurant. So what he did is he hired a team of people that came in with setting up various cameras all throughout the restaurant, in the front of house, in the kitchen, everywhere around the restaurant, even in the back alley behind the restaurant. Then he actually hired two actors to come in who would actually present themselves as new employees and they would have microphones on. And the new employees who were really actors would go about the restaurant, they would have conversations, they would be listening to the people in the control room who would say, ask this person this, or challenge them to do this, or ask them about this protocol. And the boss and the TV producers would actually capture all the content of all the people who were his employees in the restaurant. And he would be able to judge and say, are they following protocol? Are they going by the policy and procedure manual? Are they doing what they're expected to do? Are they stealing? Are they lying? Are they punching in later than they're supposed to? And the boss had exhaustive knowledge. And then he would bring his employees in one by one and express to them the angst in regards to his response to their behavior. To the ones that were stealing, to the ones that were lying, to the ones that were giving away food for free, he would call them out and say, I have it on tape that you have been doing these works. But to the ones that were actually faithful, the ones who were not stealing, the ones who were actually doing their jobs, he would reward them and promote them. So as we listen to that illustration, what we can understand is that Jesus doesn't hire a camera crew to watch us or to follow us. He's not miking us. Jesus is actually omniscient. So he knows not only our words and our deeds, he actually has full exhaustive knowledge of even our innermost thoughts that we never express to anybody else. And so thinking through that reality, when Jesus says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know the things that you have done, he's also expressing to the church in Ephesus, I actually know your heart's motivation for doing so. And Jesus then transitions to say, after he stated, I know your works, I actually know the reality of this charge that I have against you. Your heart and your love for me is not present in any of the works you're doing. So what he is telling the church in Ephesus is, I affirm the fact that you're doing all the right things. You are going to war and you're fighting the front line of apologetics. You're defending the faith. You're defending the gospel. Your doctrine is spot on. However, your heart is so far away from me. He says, you have forsaken and forgotten your first love. That is very grievous to hear our Savior say that he would actually indict his bride with the charge of now walking in a loveless marriage to her savior. It's not Jesus's love who is retreated, it's the church of Ephesus whose love has grown cold over the course of time. Perhaps it was because of rituals or traditions, or maybe they were so focused on doing the right thing that they didn't stew with their heart properly. Jesus says three things to the church in Ephesus to correct their behavior. First and foremost, he says, remember, reflect on the beauty of the gospel, reflect on the faithfulness of God. In doing so, perhaps that would rekindle their hearts to once again pursue their first love unashamedly. In addition, Jesus says, after you have remembered, I want you to repent. I think of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, where the apostle Paul actually gives us a great framework for what biblical repentance looks like. 
oversimplified, it's when we have this hatred and this disdain for the sin that we so easily indulged in or fell into, and we begin to distance ourselves from it. But yet we walk in this humility to know that although we're pursuing God and we love Him, and we've confessed our sins, and we're changing our behavior patterns, we also want to guard our hearts with the understanding we can easily fall back into those same sins again. So there's this caution that we're walking in and it's, we're walking in repentance. And then the, finally, Jesus says, return, return to your first love. He is saying, come back to me. My arms are open. I'm ready to welcome you back into this embracing reality of this love that we share for one another. And if I could be very honest, I can sympathize with the church in Ephesus. I think about when I was busy in ministry, full-time in seminary, full-time in the pastorate, traveling to different events, doing different gospel rap concerts. I was going through the motions and I remember my wife calling me into our bedroom one day after we put the kids to bed and she said, I feel like I'm in a loveless marriage with you. You're doing all the right things, Damon. You're going to work on time. You're paying the bills. You're shepherding the people of God. You're giving yourself for the work of the mission. But Damon, you're forsaking me. You're not loving me with your whole heart. You're just going through the motions. We're not communicating anymore. We're not praying together. We're not reading the Bible together. We're not going out on dates anymore. Do you still love me? And she called me out and praise God, the Holy Spirit broke my heart to listen to the cry of my wife. And that night I wept and I repented. And then she even confessed her wrongdoings and the bitterness of, that she had against me in her heart and saying, I was growing cold against you and I was separating myself against you. And when you would preach your sermons, I would say, yeah, but he doesn't love me that way. So my heart sympathizes with the church in Ephesus. So as my wife and I worked through that tension, we had to do exactly what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. We remembered first and foremost. Remembered what? We remembered why God brought us together. We had a burden and a deep desire to see the gospel communicated in the heart language of the inner city. And I felt that God was calling me to plant a church and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time said, I want to come alongside this journey. I feel like God is calling me to come alongside you and help you in that process. We remembered that. In addition, we confessed and we repented for the works that we were getting so caught up in being busy about that we neglected our own marriage. And finally, guess what? We returned. We returned back to the practices that we had early on when we were courting and early on in our marriage. We began to read the Bible together. We began to pray in the morning and the nighttime together. We watched God answer our prayers and it consistently drew us closer. And finally, we went back out on date nights. We enjoyed the time together. And this is a beautiful illustration for the reality of what Jesus is saying to his bride. And why does this illustration connect so well? The church, marriage, is the perfect illustration for the gospel. When you look at the church in Ephesus and how she became loveless, Jesus is pursuing and crying out to the church in Ephesus, return to me. I am faithful to you. Be faithful in your heart to me. So as we close out and you go into your group, as you begin to discuss through the content of this letter, I want you to think through your local church. Are you more focused on right doctrine and you're not stewarding your heart to balance the pursuit of right doctrine with a right understanding of loving your Savior with all you have? Because the reward that Jesus says that the church in Ephesus has is that they would eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What does that mean? That means the reward for loving your Savior with all you have is an eternal, uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with Him. See what I'm saying? It's the language of marriage. Jesus is calling our local churches to love Him with all that we have and stay faithful to Him 
And the natural consequence of loving God with all we have is loving his word and loving our neighbors. And then we will walk in the healthy balance of the conquerors in Jesus Christ that we are so that it will never be said that our local church is a loveless church like Ephesus.